Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Authentic Path Podcast. It has been a long time, my friends, and honestly, it's been kind of a rough year for me. I've gone through a lot of loss and change and I'm still in it, and so it's taken me many, many months to actually sit down and edit these podcasts, and so I'm going to call the next seven or so episodes that are coming out the lost episodes because I lost them, or really I lost myself and didn't record them or didn't release them. So anyway, this episode is with Diane Wingert, and she is amazing. And a lot of the stuff on this episode is stuff that I don't think I was really ready to hear at the time that I recorded it, and now it's almost six, seven, eight months later, and now I'm listening to it and being like, wow, that's that's really good. I actually needed to hear that then and just wasn't ready to hear it. So um, if you're interested in trauma, if you're interested in recovering from trauma or resiliency or what the difference between coaching and therapy is or just listening to a young man, me, and uh, older middle-aged woman, Diane, talk about life, then this is the episode for you. And honestly, I'm really excited to be back. I feel like this new uh, iteration of this podcast is going to be really interesting. I don't feel as much pressure to show up in a certain podcaster kind of way. I just want to talk to some cool people. And there are some really, really, really good episodes coming with people who I interviewed earlier this year and even some in 2020 last year um, or 2021. Wow. Yeah. Long time ago. And so I just would love to uh, hold space for those people to have their episodes shared, even though it's been a long time because their stories, their wisdom is really valuable. So I would love for you to listen and thank you so much for being here. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Without further ado, Diane Wingert. Three, two, one, zero, zero. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And like you said before we jumped on, crossing the boundaries of age and gender in the life coaching space is such a beautiful opportunity. So thank you for being here. I am very happy to be here. Awesome. Well, first of all, as we just were talking about a little bit, um, I want to start with the depths of life, with darkness and trauma and you know, how we, we face that. And so I think a good place to start is with you and why you chose, chose to become a therapist in the first place, because I feel like there's always something there for people. I would quite agree. It's an astute question. I'm glad you started off by asking it because in my experience, um, coaches come from all kinds of backgrounds. Very few of us were therapists first, like I was, but I will say from 20 plus years experience being a therapist, nobody ends up doing that job by accident. I think that most therapists are either there because they come from uh, experiences of trauma, abuse, loss, addiction, um, what we used to call dysfunctional families. Um, or they are um, culturally or just their, their unique individual personality is uh, that of a person who feels called to be of service to others who are hurting. As for me, um, I was an adopted child in a family of a mentally unstable mother and an absent father, um, but they compulsively adopted a whole bunch of us. At one time, there were like 10 kids, which is crazy because this is legitimate adoptions. We were not foster kids. 
But back in um, the 60s, you could adopt kids who are all readily available because we didn't have legalized abortion. We didn't have birth control pills. So girls got knocked up and they needed to, you know, get rid of the kids. So there were lots and lots and lots of kids available for adoption. So nobody really asked questions. You wanted them, you got them. And my dad was an aerospace engineer. So my parents had the means to adopt kids privately. So they were doctors and lawyers who knew how to keep it all hush hush. I was never even told that I was adopted. So um, I think it was probably something that happened a lot more than people might guess. And of course, it seems crazy now because the supply and demand issues with uh, adoption have completely changed. Now there aren't enough kids for the parents who want to adopt them. So things have gotten it's like the real estate market in Southern California. People are writing letters saying, pick us for your child. When I was available, no such thing. So I think one of the main reasons why I became a therapist is that in the crazy household I grew up in, I survived better than any of the other kids. I was able to develop the resiliency to not only stay sane in that environment, but to actually experience what is called post-traumatic growth. And mm. I got plenty of emotional scar tissue, Phelan, but I think I became someone who was able to not become uh, a victim in my own mind for life. And unfortunately, I see far too many people who it, it literally becomes their identity because of what's happened to them. And that was not my, my path. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I can't even imagine being in a household with 10 other adopted kids and no, I mean, what a crazy childhood to have. Um, you just mentioned something about post-traumatic growth and how some people move into that and through that. And some people go down a different path of victimization and self-victimization uh, for you, when you were growing up, what was the, what were the contributing factors that led you down the growth path as opposed to the victimization path? I think there was no doubt in my mind that what was happening to me and around me was abnormal. I, I didn't, I didn't ever question whether it was okay or not things that I saw. My uh, abuse growing up um, was there was more vicarious than actual because I actually had the skills to talk my way out of being abused sometimes and um, or outsmart my mom, if you will. Uh, I could I could observe her and and what sort of would set her off and what didn't. So I think my ability to be an observer um, and to be able to recognize uh, how to keep myself safe, to be able to recognize that, you know, the craziest people are not crazy 100% of the time. The most abusive parents are not abusive 100% of the time. There are patterns. So I was able to observe those patterns and to sort of steer clear of situations that I knew would be triggering for her, or I could see when she was escalating. When I wrote my um, letter to apply to grad school, 
I, the, I'll never forget the very first sentence was I growing up in an abusive household, I became an astute observer of human behavior from a very early age. It's good storytelling. I get that too, but it was absolutely true. And I, I remember trying to get my other siblings like, don't do that, dude. Like that's, that's, she's going to go after you. But somehow um, my ability to see those patterns, to observe them and not go into fight or flight, I kind of went into creative problem solving. I understand that makes me ex exceptional. I understand that that's not most people's experience. I mean, I was a therapist for a long time, so people can learn to be more observant. People can learn to kind of emotionally distance themselves when something's going down. I mean, think about it this way, Phelan. There are some people who go skydiving for fun, whereas plenty of people would say, why would I jump out of a perfectly good plane? You know, um, there are people who work in the emergency room when other people would rather work in a nice outpatient clinic. So I think there are some of us who actually function quite well in situations where there's a lot of mm. drama. Yeah. And I seem to be one of them. So I think maybe neurologically, I was um, not overwhelmed. Um, maybe more sensitive people might be something I, I used to do neurofeedback for a while. And um, one of the things I needed to do was to assess if people are sensitive, reactive, and how hardy they are. And I think I'm actually more um, neurologically dense, meaning I don't lose my ability to function under critical situations the way many people do. So I would make a good firefighter. I would make a good hostage negotiator. And I think I was actually born that way. But the circumstances of my childhood made it evident that not all the kids in my family were. And because two, two were not adopted, but most of us were, I didn't share any genes with any of the other kids. I didn't even know who to thank, but I, I really do think, cause I've studied resilience extensively. I think some humans are born more resilient than others. And I think I must be one of them. Mm. Well, sometimes, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger with trauma. But for those of the people out there who maybe don't feel like they were born resilient, do you have any tips or practices for them to move through hardship? Just because I know as a listener, I might be wondering that. No, absolutely. And, and I, I understand, I, I wouldn't exactly call it a privilege, but I do think I'm fortunate in that um, because I think you know, if, if you're born more resilient, I think it's easier for you to learn these things, but I wouldn't have been a therapist for so many years and wouldn't still be helping people. If I didn't believe that anyone can become more resilient than they were born to be. And of course I do believe that some of the things that I think are really, really important. I'm a big fan of cognitive behavioral therapy. I happen to be Buddhist, something I adopted about 20 years ago and I think that learning how to manage your own mind 
and learning how to change the narrative in your mind about what you are experiencing, what you have experienced in a way that if you've always thought terrible things happen to me, why do these terrible things happen to me? I must have deserved it. Um, it was my fault. You know, th these are the thoughts that many of us have naturally in a child in circumstances like mine. It is never too late to change your own story. And no one can stop you from doing that if you choose to. And I don't think it's like brainwashing yourself or um, lying to yourself. I think if anything, you are greatly served by saying what I survived made me stronger. What I went through made me more compassionate. What I have experienced and dealt with made me so much more self-aware. And just choosing to think those thoughts, in fact, makes you more resilient because we're always talking to ourselves all the time anyway, but most of us will default to, why do I keep making the same mistakes? Why am I such a dumbass? And what the hell is the matter with me? Like that tends to be most people's default. We can absolutely revise that inner script and start to think of ourselves as the most more resilient person. I'm sure you do the same, right? Yeah, I try. <laughs> yeah. I had a client call yesterday and this this quote kept coming up of why did I do that? And there was yes. just this like essence of beating my, my client was beating their past self up. Mm. And it was like, yeah, just hearing you say that back to me, I'm like, oh, wow, that, you know, we all do do that all the time. And Buddhism shows that with suffering and attaching to yes. that stuff. But, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think most people think of um, with Buddhism, we don't really think about being attached to our beliefs about ourselves, but you are not your story. Totally. Like I, I just told you a story about my past, but I could have told you a completely different story about the very same facts. It's up to us to choose, but I think Buddhism helped me recognize that I am not the story and I am not a role in my story. Like I am actually the observer. I'm like the narrator. So I can dictate how the story goes. If I choose to do that, I'd like to share um, a free resource with you and with your audience that I actually recommend to all of my coaching clients and have had some incredible breakthroughs as a result. Um, it's a free app for both, um, iOS and Android, it's called Think Up. Think Up. And I'm sure you're familiar with affirmations. And affirmations are basically the thoughts we choose to think about ourselves that are more positive than the ones we naturally think of ourselves. But what's brilliant about this app is that, and I think the free version is perfectly adequate. Nobody needs to pay for this. Um, it allows you to choose a small handful of affirmations, and there's tons of suggestions but you record them in your own voice, in wow. your own voice. Yeah. And here's why this is powerful because you meditate, you know, this, the affirmations in our own voice 
and you can combine it with music and nature sounds if you want. There's lots of options. It's the voice that you're already talking to yourself with. So it literally allows you to overwrite the what the fuck is the matter with you? Why can't you get your shit together? Why did you say that? What is your problem? Like it, it overrides that through practice. And I just tell people, cause your, your brain will resist anything new, even if it's good for you. So just let it sort of play on your phone in the background while you're getting ready in the morning. And then again, at night, when you're doing your winding down routine, it's sort of subliminally influencing your inner soundtrack without you like actively trying to change it. I I have found it to be really incredible and it's free. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I'll link it in the show notes. So something that I feel like you're uniquely qualified to talk about is the difference and similarities between coaching and therapy. And I'm sure you get this question all the time. All the time. Yeah. But I'm wondering, because I think that what we're talking about now, you know, moving from trauma through negative self-talk into positive self-talk, there's this question of like, where do we come from and where do we go? Mm. Um, And where do we need therapy and where do we need coaching? And I would love to just hear your thoughts on that. And in addition to that, if you could kind of tie in why you switched from therapy to coaching. That'd yeah, be awesome. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important. And I, I, you know, you, you regard that I get asked this a lot and I do, and I am uniquely qualified to, to answer it. And I think it's, it's confusing to a lot of people because let me start by going backwards. The amount of training that you have to go through to become a licensed therapist is intense, Right. Um, I already had a previous career and had kind of, I don't know, you could call it an early midlife crisis. I had a very serious car accident that left me with chronic pain. And um, that's how I actually found my way into Buddhism, because I went through all of these treatments for pain, including like twice a week acupuncture for two years, like all kinds of stuff. And I still had it. And I thought there must be something else. So my Orthodox Jewish pain doctor said, well, you might try meditation. Some people find that helpful. So I wandered into meditation for pain and ended up staying for perspective. But what you go through to become a licensed therapist, um, at the time I had this car accident, I wasn't able to work for a while. I started thinking, what if I had died? And I started actually imagining my funeral and people standing around. I had been in medical sales, people saying, yeah, she really knew how to move product and she had the best market share of any of our reps. And I'm like, really seriously, is that what I want to be remembered for? So I decided I actually wanted to help people Applied to UCLA, got in, you go through two years for a master's degree on top of your bachelor's and then two years of supervised practice. And then two exams. When I got licensed, it was a written exam and an oral exam. You have to renew your license every two years with X number of continuing education hours. You have to be supervised by somebody and you have to carry malpractice insurance because you can get sued if somebody doesn't think you did a good job. So there's lots and lots and lots of preparation, training and regulation. Why would I walk away from that and become a coach? couple, about three reasons. I had a very successful private practice um, and I loved what I did, but I reached a point where I thought, you know, I'm working with clients and I had, as a therapist, I had worked with mostly kids and teens and youth. 
I have a soft spot for them, obviously, because of my own past. And my oldest son is bipolar. I have ADHD. I've passed on ADHD to all three of my kids. And um, I have struggled with depression to the point of wanting to end my life on a couple of occasions. Yeah, in my life. So I'm no stranger to, to mental health. But I realized at some point that I had spent 20 years of my life dealing with trauma, dealing with loss, dealing with abuse, dealing with addiction, dealing with family dysfunction, dealing with broken hearted people, dealing with like serious stuff, serious, serious stuff. And I kind of reached a point where I thought, you know, I'm ready to help a different group of people who have healed what can be healed from their past. And they're like, now what? Most of them will stay in therapy because it's what they're used to, because they have a good relationship with the therapist, because some people just keep going because they're afraid if they stop going that they're going to fall apart. So it's almost like insurance. But I think there's a large and growing number of people who have dealt with their past, who have dealt with their trauma, who are basically, I don't know if you ever can be 100% healed, but you're healthy, you're functional. Um, you, you have good relationships, you, you know, you have coping skills and therapy at that point, Phelan is really not optimal because the way a therapist is trained and the orientation of a therapist is number one is safety and insight and healing. And as a therapist in private practice, what I found with my peers was there's almost a disincentive to pronounce someone healthy and whole because now you got an opening in your client roster. I remember a conversation with a a peer of mine who was very, he was kind of bragging that he had been seeing the same clients for anywhere from 15 to 25 years. I was a little more verbally impulsive at that time. And I said, shame on you, dude. He's like, what? And I said, you mean to tell me none of them get well enough not to need you anymore? Yeah. He was completely insulted and people were giving me the side eye. And I'm like, what are people, what are, what are we in this for? Like, I want to help people get healthy, get healing, resolve their attachment to the person they think they are because of the past. And then what? And I don't think continuing to cover the same territory that you've already dealt with. I think you need a different modality. I know you and I both believe um, in a spiritual path and we both have experienced tremendous growth and healing through travel. So I think at some point therapy is no longer the ideal modality or the ideal tool. If a person is basically healthy and now what they want is growth and expanding their awareness and being better at identifying and reaching goals at that point, coaching is the better modality. But I think here's the problem. A lot of people want to work with a coach, less people want to work with a therapist. Why? Unfortunately, stigma. And in my experience, one of my big concerns is because coaching is relatively new, 
um, because there basically is no barrier to entry. Anybody who wants to be a coach can be a coach. There is no stigma um, that unintentionally, I think there are well-meaning coaches who are trying to help people who really should be in therapy and either they don't know it or they do know it, but they tell themselves, well, they're not willing to see a therapist. So isn't it better that they get something rather than nothing? And I think personally, no, because I don't think someone who's untrained should be mucking around with a person who has been traumatized unless they're getting some sort of ongoing supervision themselves, especially if they're a trauma survivor. What a therapist is trained to understand is something called transference and counter-transference, which is how we identify with the person that we're trying to help. And the counter-transference is how they identify with us. So sometimes we don't realize, we think we're being helpful but we're either re-traumatizing them, re-traumatizing ourselves, or just failing to help them really move forward in a meaningful way. And I think there's a lot of that out there, but most people are completely unaware of. I, I'm not bad-mouthing coaching. I think coaching is great. I made the change because I wanted to start talking about possibilities and potential and growth I didn't really want to be doing the deep therapeutic healing work anymore. And I think there's a lot of people who are probably still seeing a therapist who are actually ready for a coach. Those are ideal people for me because I know when they're actually ready to make that change. Does that all make sense? I know I talked yeah. for a really long time. No, there was a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, one of the, the big things I'm just, feeling for myself in this moment is like oh shit <laughs> like I've she's talking that. about me <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it it the thing is is that listen i'm i'm not the um i'm not the judge and jury i'm not i don't have any oversight for anyone but but i do think that um let me let me put some context around this feeling yes i think there are coaches who are actually doing therapy without the training and some of them are probably even doing it pretty well because in truth, there's a whole lot of therapeutic work that is being done by bartenders, police officers, hairdressers, massage yeah. therapists, like people choose psychics, energy healers, like, you know, who am I to say what an individual needs for their healing? Um, there are plenty of people who, if you even suggest that they see a therapist, they'll scoff at you and say, I'm not crazy. So is that person better off working with a coach who's trauma informed than not working with anyone else? Common sense will tell you. Yes. I just think we need to know like safe limits and when you really do need to help the person yeah. bring, bring a therapist into the conversation, not necessarily let them go, you know? Totally. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Um, I feel very strongly that we all have the power and resources inside of ourselves to heal from whatever has happened. And I think that the most powerful form of 
accompaniment work, whether it's through therapy or massage or haircutting is like really holding space for someone to witness their own capacity for resilience and tenacity and growth. Mm. Um, whether that's like, and then bringing it back to what you said, whether that's in kind of a safe space or an uncomfortable space to me, feels mm. like the difference maybe between therapy and coaching in a way, like, cause coaching is not, I mean, it is safe, but it's not comfortable. You know, like if you're, if your depends clients are, on, depends on who you're working with. Sure. 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 Yeah, yeah. I guess like a big part of the job though is like, Hey, you like get out of your comfort zone, like go try that thing you haven't tried or do that thing you haven't done. Um, so I'm just reflecting on all of that while you're talking. I think and- you and I have similar approaches because we've been through some similar things. Right. And I, I don't, you know, I worked with a therapist on my own healing. Would I have worked with a trauma informed coach? Maybe. I think that's it's this is maybe a difference between our generations as well. Um, because coaching is much more available now and it, it, uh, it will appeal to people who probably wouldn't see a therapist or maybe tried to see one. The bottom line is it's about goodness of fit. Mm -hmm. Not all therapists are good just because they're qualified Mm -hmm. and not all coaches are unqualified simply because they didn't go to grad school. I mean, life is really the best teacher. School of hard knocks. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I've had people say to me, you know, why did you go through two years of coach training and certification when you were already a therapist? And it's like, because it's a different modality. And there was a lot I needed to unlearn. Like I'll, I'll give you this one. I needed to unlearn being the expert because I am and was an expert to hold space for the inherent expert in each of my coaching mm-hmm. clients, right? You didn't have to unlearn that. So you well, could learn less, how to maybe. hold space. <laughs> okay. But I mean, you didn't have to learn all the professional indoctrination. Yeah. That actually turned out to be the most important part of my journey as a coach is unlearning the therapist role in helping people. Cause it really is different. And I'll tell you how a therapist is the expert in the room, which means the other person can't also be an expert, right? Now, nobody like, we, it's not taught to us that way, but it's part of the professional indoctrination. You are the expert. You have a license to identify, assess, diagnose, and treat mental disorders. So there's kind of an unconscious assumption that the other person knows less than you do, but they are an expert in how their mental health struggles arise and how they experience them. You couldn't possibly know more about their struggle than they do. But when you're trained to be the expert and I've got a license to diagnose, um, there's a subtle difference in the power. It, it, it can feel less collaborative. It can feel more, more like the medical model and less like we're two human beings getting through life and choosing to partner on this journey together. Yeah. I, I like this better. It feels, feels more democratic, right? Yeah. Beautiful. I want to take us away from the coaching versus therapy thing and just like dive a little more into you and mm-hmm. thank you for sharing. Cause sure. I think 
like I said, uniquely qualified and very beautiful way of presenting the differences. So thank you. Um, on your journey in life, you have gone through different professions and different marriages, probably different living situations. Um, and there's this element of constant change and loss in life. Mm. And I'm kind of going through that now. And so I just want to ask like a very personal person or selfish question, yeah, which is like when, when you're in the midst of big loss and transition, how do you navigate opening to possibility and letting go of what has been? Mm. The timing turns out to be really good, right? We rescheduled this interview and I just think things always happen when they're meant to happen. So I don't resist that, even if something may seem inconvenient in the moment. I am about to go through another major change, which involves loss. And as you mentioned, uh, I've been married three times. I've been in this relationship for 25 years. Um, and we moved from Los Angeles to Portland in March of 2019. Um, my husband retired from his previous career. I had left my therapy practice and became a coach. I was already working online, so I was remote. And um, we, I wouldn't say it was impulsive, but we, I'd lived in LA all my life. He'd lived in LA for 25 years and we decided to try another city. So we moved to Portland. We, we like made our decision four weeks later, we were there. We actually sold our house in LA from Portland. So it was a big wow. change. And people were like, wait, what, why, what's happening? And I'm like, we just want to do something new. So we've been here three years. As of Friday, the moving truck pulls up again because COVID has prevented us from really putting down any roots in this city. Mm from really getting to know anyone, even getting to know the city, much less the people in it. And so in January, you know, we realized that I hadn't seen my kids in over a year. They all still live in California. So we rented a house in the desert and each of my kids came to visit for a while, as well as friends in LA we hadn't seen since we moved, who drove two and a half hours each way to have dinner with us. By two and a half weeks into that month, Phelan, we said, what the fuck are we doing in Portland? <laughs> like, what are we doing? We don't know anybody here. Downtown Portland has become a dumpster fire in the last year. So we're not going there. And we have left a whole lifetime of people and familiar places and access to things that we care about in L.A., so it didn't take too long for us to decide that we were going to go back to California, but we're not going back to the place we came from. We're going to a whole new place. We're going to the desert. You've probably been to Coachella, so you know how nice it or Joshua Tree or yeah. So it's really nice there. It's close enough that I can reconnect with my old life. But as we've been packing these last few weeks, and realizing, oh, this is the last time I'm going to see my dentist, who I really, really like. This is the last time I'm going to go here. Oh, let's go have dinner at that place, that Thai place that we both really like, and make sure we get the number of our favorite waiter. It's, it's realizing that, yes, I'm, I was ready to come, and I'm ready to leave, but 
I will not bypass my emotions around the losses. Because even though I say we didn't really get to know anybody here, there is a loss of the dream we had when we decided to come. Our expectations, our yearnings, like we had this whole idea about the life we were going to have here, didn't happen. So we could cling to that dream and hope we could still cultivate it, or we could release it and say, disappointed, we went to a lot of trouble, disrupted our life, we've lost some relationships, we may not be able to get back. Um, and now we're going to go try again somewhere else. I don't know if it's any easier, the more times you do it, Phelan, but I, I do think that I recognize when we come to the next move that I'm going to start actively reaching out and feeling connected with my new city right away. I, I think I don't, I try to be a person who doesn't have regrets. I think regret is a really useless emotion, but um, I realized that I would probably be in a different place now if I had taken a more active role, a less passive role when we first got here so that once COVID happened, we would at least have some connections. I just feel like this whole three-year experience here has been a missed opportunity that's helped inform me that I need to be more intentional and I need to be, I need to clearly identify what are my goals for the next adventure and not just assume that it'll work out or things will happen, but to actually have a plan for it. I need to, for example, I, one thing I didn't do, um, I did not connect with the Dharma center here. I did not connect with a place to practice meditation and the teachings of the Buddha. I didn't look for that. Would that have changed how I feel about being in Portland? What I have decided to stay? I don't know, but I realize if there's things we want, we have to identify them, be honest with ourselves about them and, and make a plan to at least put ourselves in the circumstances where we can attract those things and find those things. I think I, I was, I think a little uncharacteristically passive when I came here, I've also been really honest with myself and others. Um, when we came here, I was so focused on the new adventure, the new thing. I really wasn't talking a lot about the loss of the whole life I left behind. And I think I may have unconsciously hurt some people because of that, mm. because I was just talking about, yeah, we're ready for the new adventure. It's going to be so great and stuff. And, you know, not everybody is as happy to see you move on to your next adventure as you are to have it. I am a person who has a high tolerance for change and I never mean to be hurtful to people, but I didn't just lose them. They lost me too. And then they couldn't even get on a plane to visit if they wanted to, because nobody could get it on a plane. Yeah. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing what's been going on for you. I appreciate it. You bring up a really good point around how challenging it's been to engage with our lives over the last two years. And I think that 
you know, when we talk about loss and change generally in our society and in the world, you know, we've lost a lot just based on what's been happening. And I think that there's not been enough recognition of that. And you mentioned the word emotional bypass, I think earlier, and Mm -hmm. we've, as a society, we've been doing a lot of emotional bypassing. And I think a lot of people, as the world starts to open up, are getting by, but aren't really flourishing because of this, this missing chance to engage. And Mm. the norm has become to sit on our computers or our screens at home and connect with the world through this like mirage. Right. But when you walk outside, it's like, you know, did you meet your neighbors in Portland? Right. Like maybe, I don't know, but there's just like this, these opportunities for genuine real world connection beyond the screen. And I think Mm. that getting us as a species back into that mode of, of who are you? How can I get to know you better? Like, how can we eat dinner and cook and share music or whatever? Like, so that's just coming up for me. And then on this journey of like authenticity, you know, how do I want to show up in the world beyond the screen, beyond my house in a way that's really authentic and engaged for me or for you? So that's just some thoughts. Does anything come up for you? Yeah. It's really reassuring to hear younger people say this because something I've been thinking and and talking about a lot is that because we've all become so acclimated, so adapted to living on our screens, there's been a huge number of people in the last few years, even pre-COVID, but especially during, I won't say after, because we're not after yet, we're still in it. A lot of people are self-identifying with social anxiety disorder. A lot of people are saying, I'm an introvert. A lot of people are talking about having social awkwardness to the point where I wouldn't exactly call it an epidemic villain, but it's like, you know, um, I know that there's like a certain percentage of people that have these issues biologically and a certain percentage of people who are introverts, extroverts, and so forth. But the huge increase in people who are saying, I'm really uncomfortable around people, or I don't, I, mm-hmm. I, I would like to be in a relationship, but I don't know how to date, or I don't know how to walk up to people. I don't know how to interview for a job. I don't know how to ask a stranger for directions. I'm like, what is happening? And I, to me, um, even if you were an introvert, even if you were socially awkward, even if you... Uh, had genuine social anxiety before we had this option to live our entire lives behind a screen, we had to challenge ourselves to get out and, and figure out how to get our needs met and make things happen. And I fear that as a culture, as a species, even that we are losing things like social skills, social graces, social courtesies, common sense, the ability to share space with other humans. We have mirror neurons for a reason, right? We have waves from our heart that can reach as far as a football field for other humans to connect with. These are not my opinions. These are facts. Our brain waves, our heart rhythms, these can be measured on medical equipment. 
And it is proof that human beings are, in fact, a social species, even the most socially anxious or awkward among us. But I do think that um, not being out in nature, not being out, period, and not being challenged to overcome shyness or awkwardness or mental disorders is degrading what actually makes us human. I mean, people fundamentally want to love and be loved, want to know and be known. And nobody wants to be lonely. Nobody wants to be isolated. That in and of itself is suggestive of a genuine problem. But the fact that so many of us are choosing to avoid as much contact with others yeah. as we possibly can, um, out of convenience, um, and because it's become so comfortable, that is deeply troubling to me about our future as human beings. Yeah. That just, I think you really hit the nail on the head there of avoiding trying to connect because it's uncomfortable and then feeling lonely. And there's just this like, and even for me, you know, I've, I used to be really socially anxious. And the whole reason I started this podcast and wrote a book and I'm doing what I'm doing is because I found that my lack of confidence in myself and my lack of self-awareness or even just knowing who I was, was leading me to have so much fear of showing myself in the world that I felt alone all the time, which was so depressing. And I like didn't make choices that I actually wanted to make anyway. So all of that, that's like where the world is at today in a lot of ways. And I think that for me, even it's like, I meet people and it's hard to connect because that's where other people are at too. And so Mm. even as someone who like, I'm not perfect, but as someone who's grown through this enough to have some self-awareness around it, I like struggle to find other people who are the same level, have the same levels of vulnerability and self-awareness as I do. And so, but all of this to say, I think that there's like, you know, what has been comfortable of sitting at home alone is now becoming uncomfortable for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. And so Mm -hmm. that gives me hope as a system that we're going to start addressing this on in really big ways. And I think it's people like you and people like me who are, you know, at the forefront of this as coaches and as therapists, healers, visionaries of how do we unlock the world to unleash its fullest potential, right? One person at a time, or, you know, maybe more, but I would love to hear a little bit of your thoughts around how your vision for what the future of the world can be plays into your personal work. Um, Because I think you probably have a really cool vision. (laughs) Well, well, let me answer by, by sharing like why I even agreed to do this interview, because normally the people that uh, pitch me to be on their podcast or ask to be on mine, um, they, they're women typically, and they're usually probably in their late thirties to mid forties or so. So the first thing that caught my eye is that you're a guy and that you're a young guy. And I was like, that's interesting. You know, like, why is this young guy interested in talking to me on this podcast? So I think the first thing that got my attention was curiosity. But then when I started looking into who you are and what you've done and what you stand for, 
it was a no brainer. I'm like, I'm doing this because I hear a lot of people in my generation talking shit about millennials, like a lot of them and people younger than millennials. It's kind of like this. I don't know if it's like Gen X or boomer pride or whatever, but I get all the jokes and the memes about, okay, boomer and talking about Karens and all that, because I try to stay up on current events and where the culture is moving. I think the biggest missed opportunity out there, maybe you and I are a little tiny part of it, is people reaching across age, race, gender, orientation, lifestyle, whatever, and being honest about being human Mm. and saying, hey, I don't buy that there is an epidemic of social anxiety. I think there is an epidemic of people who are trying to live life through their devices and losing their ability to deal with fear, discomfort, and uncertainty. I just did a podcast episode on, on FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's like, we are actually losing our resilience because we are not putting ourselves in situations that give us the opportunity to feel uncomfortable, to work through that discomfort. And even if we don't have a great outcome, it's a freaking win because you did a hard thing. We can do hard things, but I think culturally we're losing the ability to believe that we can. And yet, who are we all admiring the hell out of right now? Zelensky. Mm, Why? Because he is unequivocally clear about what he cares about. He is vulnerable. He has courage. He stands for something. You know, it's like, why do we admire that so much? And yet in our personal lives, we are doing everything we can to prevent ourselves from developing those things. So I think the missed opportunity is people reaching across generations, across the miles and saying, hey, human here. Any other humans want to yeah, talk yeah. about talk about being human and what we are all dealing with right now in a way that is honest and direct, unapologetic, but also hopeful. Mm. Hopeful. Like, I don't think we're quite ready for an alien invasion or a zombie apocalypse or anything like that. I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I don't think we're all going to hell and, you know, uh, the, the good old days are over. I think there are absolutely better days ahead of us, but we're not going to get there by being in our little silos, in our little encampments where we're all afraid of each other and pointing yeah. fingers and doubt and blame and all that. It's like, we're all freaking human here. We actually have you and I, in spite of our differences, those differences are on the surface. We have more in common than we don't. And I don't know why that's so hard for so many to be honest about, but I do think it, I agree with you that there are a growing number and being authentic, but not talking about being authentic. Cause you and I both know in the coaching industry, the word authentic is a little bit of a buzzword. 
being authentic is not talking about how authentic you are. It's having the hard conversations. It's having the honest conversations. It's not saying, okay, we can talk about everything, but this, like you want, you want to ask me about how many times I've been married and divorced. You want to ask me what I learned from that. You want to ask me about my mental disorders. Do you want to ask me about my abusive childhood? Like, but also I think getting to the point where you realize this isn't about like me personally having the guts to be honest. This is about recognizing that what really is hurting mankind is that we're all afraid and none of us is admitting it. We are all afraid, all of us. And we don't want to admit it because we think it's just us. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's terrified. Yeah. If I had come on this call with, you know, hundred percent authenticity or honesty myself, I would have said, Diane, you seem like you've got your shit together and you've gone through a lot. I'm really scared about the future of our world and also about my own future, having gone through so much loss and change recently and being in this place of unknown. Like, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> you know, And that's such a different place to enter. And not that anything we've talked about hasn't been real or important, but there's just that like, yeah, we all are afraid. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, um, we have very little trust in our authorities. We have little trust in our systems. Um, I, I happen to know like a huge percentage of adults in my kids' generation don't want to get married or have kids or even choose a career because they look to my generation's example and they go, no oh, sale, like <laughs> no yeah. sale, dude. Like yeah. I, I, it's like, I, I, I'm not buying what you're selling. Right. You know? And, and frankly, I think that's another thing like about, you know, unlearning being an expert. Mm. Another thing to unlearn is as you get older, instead of clinging to your authority, clinging to your credentials, cling, cl- clinging to, you know, whatever status or stature you have, we need to evolve as our culture evolves because nobody gives a shit who you used to be. It's irrelevant. Mm. I just don't want to become irrelevant. I don't want to become a fucking dinosaur. So I learned about technology. So I enjoy having conversations with younger people. You're the future. I'm not the future. I'll be dead soon. I mean, relatively speaking, right? (laughs) So the future that you're going to be having people my age need to give a shit about, even though we're not going to be there. And I just see a lot of people just only focusing on themselves, their family, their, their socioeconomic group or whatever. It's like the human race is what's at stake here. Yeah, literally. It really is. Yeah. It's not like life is going to, I mean, you know, I might go through some tumult, but in a million or hundred million years, like life's going to be fine, but will the human race survive this time of our life? I don't know. And I think you're right that it comes down to, you know, yes, we all have fear and that's also an opportunity to have courage, right. And to make these connections and the same way that it takes me sending a cold email to you, someone I've never met. Yes. You having the courage to say, yes, like I'll come on this call with a stranger and talk about my vulnerabilities and the things that have happened in my life with someone I've never met before. And who's someone like in a different life than me, basically. Right. And so there's this, 
this opportunity to be courageous and to build connections that I think is really important. Yeah. Um, okay. I just want to move us toward wrapping up. Yep. And so I have two questions I ask to everyone who comes on the show. Um, or it's really one question with two parts. The first part is, uh, what does authenticity mean to you? And the second part is, and how do you know when you're being authentic? And mm. I think the reason I asked this question is because authenticity is so buzzwordy, but it really does feel important to me too. And I just want to give everyone their own chance to, to answer that question. Mm. You know, the funny thing about authenticity and being authentic, Phelan, is that, and, and because we're both coaches, we know that it's something that gets talked about a lot, almost to the point where it's anything but authentic. Um, I think to really be impactful, you're a leader, I'm a leader. Um, we don't just want to make our own individual lives better. We want to help other people make their lives better too. So I think it is a, a position of responsibility. And when you speak up, somebody's going to listen. May not be a lot of somebody's, or it may be, but I think it's important to be intentional about how you show up and, and what you say, but not too intentional. You know what I mean? Because it's like, I no longer listen to any of the podcasts that interview people who literally have the same conversation with every guest or the guests who literally have the same conversation on every podcast, mm. because it's a script. It's a spiel. It's the packaged version of what they are willing to share. Yeah. I, I showed up intentionally here today to have an authentic, vulnerable conversation. And you asked me if I had any questions. Notice that I didn't. It's like, you lead, I'll follow. You tell me where you want to go and I'm there. Um, and I think our willingness to not always know what's going to happen it does require courage, but we are our most authentic selves when we're not trying to position ourselves or gain some certain advantage or like, I, I'm just here for the conversation and I am not attached to anything that comes from it. I have no expectations of it. I'm not thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Or shouldn't I be doing something else with this time? It's just literally being present. So for me, authenticity is being intentional about showing up in, in a direct and honest way, but not thinking too much about what I want to get across specifically. I want to be open to what happens. I think anyone who does any kind of media, whether you do YouTube or a podcast or a blog or, or, Instagram reels or anything, there's, there can always be a little bit of a performative aspect, but um, because we know what people respond to and what people like, I, I try not to pay too much attention to that. I try not to care too much. How many followers, how many, this, how many that, or which, which episodes have the most downloads. Oh, I'll do more of that because I really feel like what I'm trying to do is just show up be honest, talk about the things that matter to me, talk about the things that I think are important and, and see who they connect with. I'm not trying to 
manipulate. And I think the absence of being manipulative or trying to game things or trying to get some sort of specific outcome that takes away from authenticity for me. My guiding principles are to be as mindful as I possibly can in every interaction I have. Mindfulness, really simple, open. I'm open to whatever happens. This could have been a total dud or it could have been the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I'm open to whatever happens as it's happening. Two, curious. Like I said, you first got me because I'm like, who's this guy and why does he want to talk to me? Like I was just flat out curious. And then you were so charming and lovely and, and, and honest and vulnerable. That's why I said yes. So open, curious, and non-judgmental. If I had allowed myself to be judgmental, and every human has this ability, it's innate in us, we have to tame it and work with it, is to think, oh, I'm moving on Friday. I don't have time for this. Or, oh, his audience is probably not my audience. I don't don't need to do this. And it's like, you don't know. Mm. You don't know. Yeah. That's being authentic for me. Open, curious, and non-judgmental. It's really beautiful to see that or hear that and then see it reflected in you throughout our conversation Mm. today. So thank you for bringing your values to bear on the way that you show up. And there's just this like idea of sitting in the face of the unknown Mm. with humility that I'm really seeing you as embodying. So Mm. Thanks. Um, I hope I make new friends where I'm moving to. I'm, uh, you know, and that, that's just, that's the other thing. I, one last thing is I realize, yeah, just being like, I'm a little sad that I didn't make more friends here. I'm willing to take responsibility for not being more, uh, not putting more energy behind it. But um, that's what I need to do differently in the next place. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we don't get what we want and we're not doing anything to make it happen, I don't really think we have anybody to blame for that. That's, that's, that's a low, yeah. it's a low bar. So thank yeah, you. For- my, of course. Thank you for coming. Yeah. My coach and mentor, Jerry Colonna has this saying of how have you been complicit in creating the conditions that you say you don't want or yep. the conditions for the things you say you don't want Yep, or something like that. And it's just like, Oh, every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I, I call it co-authoring your own misery. Yeah. Like, that's you know, awesome. we, we, that's a little bit fewer words, but like we, we, we want to blame other people for how we feel, but what part are you playing in attracting it, engaging with it and maintaining it? There's yeah. always something there worth looking at, but it's like, Ooh, right between the eyes. Yeah. yeah. And if any of you would like help answering those questions, go talk to Diane. Yeah, it seems like absolutely. this is her expertise. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so much for coming. It's been an honor to talk to you and let's go take some ownership. Live our lives. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Authentic Path Podcast. This is your host, Phelan Sugarman-Lash. And one thing before you go, you can find everything Diane at Diane Wingert Coaching. And that is spelled D I A N. N-W-I-N-G-E-R-T coaching.com and her Instagram I believe is linked 
on her website. And if you want to just go straight to her Instagram, it's the same, uh, except for it's coach Diane Wingert. Uh, and that is her Instagram. So highly recommend following her journey. She's really awesome. I hope that you got something from this podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about coaching, reach out to her, reach out to me. Um, if you want to hear more cool podcasts with different new guests, then come back next time. I will be interviewing some really amazing people from all across industries. And um, yeah, I just felt really lucky to, to talk to all these people. So come back and listen to more of the lost episodes. All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you.